Welcome to Short Course, episode 86, for December 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Ben Barry. As usual, we'll start with a few corrections. Two points. Uh, one, someone that did shoot the world shoot reached out to me after last week's show and clarified that the current policy is that only people on the teams do, in fact, get the paid match fee and, and travel stipend, such as it is, and everybody else is actually traveling on their own dime, which, okay, all the better, less money out of pocket, as I recommended for USPSA for the people who are going there for their own pleasure. And, and as an organization, we are sponsoring the people with the, the best chance to get on the podium. Uh, he also clarified that for him, the, his expenses all in was actually only about 2100 So my my estimate of $5,000 for a trip to Thailand, I, I had just looked up the flights and saw that they were about $2,000 but that was apparently not if you bought if you booked early you could get the flights for about $1000 and then all the other costs hotel and and time in the in the country were actually fairly reasonable given Thailand is is not that expensive of a country so i can certainly see allowance in in the policy for having a, a an adjustment based on the cost of the country that you're traveling in obviously going to a world shoot in france is going to cost more than a, a world shoot in thailand but the the policy can can take that into account while still not being as as stingy as it is to the to the competitors that we're sending. Uh, second thing, I did get a chance this past week to read the latest issue of the USPSA magazine, formerly known as Front Sight, and I thought that it was interesting. So the the previous issue had the typical letter from the the president, which is always the the first thing, the the first article in the in the issue indicating its primary importance. And last month's or last issues was Yimin Lin's first one, where he basically just said, you know, hey, thanks for electing me. Here's where I was when I found out. So nothing really of substance. And I was curious to see what he would write in in this most recent episode. And again, his his personal column was basically nothing. He says, you know, we had a nationals and we had 383 competitors at Race Gun and 264 at PCC, and here was the match director and a bunch of people involved, and here's who finished with what, and basically saying nothing but telling you match results. So not exactly leadership of any meaningful kind. And then I found it interesting that in the middle of the the, the the issue, he also had a second article nominally written. I mean, I don't know if he wrote it or not, or if someone else wrote it and just slapped his name on it. But it was nominally about the, the Pan American Championship, which I was actually pretty interested to see because obviously this was a big IPSC match that happened on U.S. shores. And I was, when I saw that there was an article about it, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe there's actually going to be some coverage of it. Um, nope. No, nope, it basically just says, here's the range where it was held, here's the people that were on my squad, and here's the people who placed well in their various divisions. Nothing about what made the match interesting, nothing about how it was different, nothing about the match at all. Just a complete empty suit of an article. And, I mean, it's it covers two pages, but each page is half photographs, so, I mean, the whole thing can't be more than 500 words. So... I'm not sure, you know, what we really should have expected. Certainly, I think having more public communication from someone who's supposed to be increasing transparency, possibly going on the USPSA podcast or, you know, publishing articles of of any substance in the in the magazine would be good, but so far we're we're not getting that. So, 
what we are getting is an interesting forum post that someone directed my attention to where Jake Martins, director of media and events on his local gun forum, informed uh, another local shooter that apparently the board is planning on taking up production rule changes at the January in-person board meeting. So this is typically where they'll get together in person at before or after SHOT Show and have days of meetings, typically two, three days, something like that. And this is really where a lot of discussion happens, in-person interactions, some examination of guns or something if there's a question about division rules. So this is typically where a lot of business for the year is done. And so the fact that production is up for discussion was interesting to me. Obviously, it's a division that I'm very interested in. And the bylaws, as they were amended, one of the changes that, that went through was that competitor rules can only be competitor equipment rules can only be changed once a year. So the way that that it's written, the bylaws state that the rules committee will present proposed rule changes to the board no later than August 1st. The proposed rules must be posted on the website by September 1st, and members must have 90 days to review and give comments on the proposed rules before the board can vote on them. And any rules that that are voted on by the board will only go into effect on January 31st of each year. So in theory, there could be multiple rounds of rules being proposed, opened for comment, and then voted on throughout the year. And so, but they would only take effect January 31st, 2024, which would be 31 days after the term of the next Area 6 director starts, or if Bruce runs again and he's reelected when his, his next term starts. So I thought it was worth covering my thoughts on production and where I think I would like to see it go, because obviously if this can be brought into the discussion as a part of this year's board meeting, be discussed, and possibly be voted on, then it could get into the rule set a year or two earlier than if I'm advocating for this personally on the board. So I'm going to lay out what I think. I encourage you to take what I present. If you agree with it, if you disagree with it, whatever you think, reach out to your area director because apparently this is going to be up for discussion at the January board meeting and who knows when they'll actually release any any proposed rules for feedback. But in my opinion, the the sooner that we can have a discussion about this, the better. And I'm just one guy. I don't think my area director particularly listens to me, but I wanted to put this word out. And so hopefully if you are thinking along the same lines, or even if you're not, if you completely disagree with me, reach out to your area director and tell them, hey, I think this Ben Barry guy is completely up a tree. Here's what I'd like to see instead. But it sounds like production is up for being adjusted. And this is what I would do if I were in a place to, to advocate for changes. So if we set aside specialty divisions like single stack and revolver that are, I think, regarded as basically legacy divisions, they're not really something that's going to grow. There's something there for people that want to shoot it, but it's not, it doesn't represent something that people are really getting into the sport and dying to shoot. And so I think the the question, the way to, to look at this and, and analyze the divisions, again, going back to this idea of, of values that I talked about a few episodes ago, the, the, the perspective that I approach this from is that I think the gear divisions should and mostly do reflect the idea that there's basically three levels of modification that people are interested in, in having to their gun. 
There are the people that want to shoot a mostly stock gun with mostly stock ammo. So this would be a classic production style division with actual stock guns shooting 9mm factory ammo. So that's the that's the low to no modification tier. There's the middle tier, which is limited, where you can shoot a gun that's a custom one-off built by somebody. You can make almost any change you want except for having an optic or a compensator. And then there's the extreme level of change of customization to the gun, which is open, where, again, you can basically go completely crazy. And I think this is a good way to conceptualize most shooters because most people fall into one of these three buckets. Or if they don't, they enjoy dabbling in the different ones because they are meaningfully different. I mean, one of the things that is that is hard to refute at this point is the idea that aside from capacity, production is basically limited minor in terms of the the modifications you can make to the gun. And carry optics is basically limited minor optics. And so the 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 distinction between the divisions where production and carry optics are not meaningfully really stock gun divisions in any real sense anymore those those have kind of blurred and i think that is counterproductive again going back to this value that i think it is useful to have basically these three levels and people can choose which level they want to play at if you want i mean when i got into the sport if you had a glock and you wanted to put an sjc frame weight on it and uh and the, the magwell and you know do all this crazy stuff limited was the place for you if you wanted to shoot your glock stock production was the place for you I think these these three levels of customization are sort of the way to look at it. And then within these levels, it makes sense to subdivide into optics and non-optics divisions. Now, I don't think there's demand for a high modification irons division, so like an open irons. Nobody's talking about that. I don't think there's any interest. But if we look at the low modification stock gun level of, of customization, there's obviously interest in an irons and an optics division there. And then I think at the medium tier, what we are finding for these people who want to do a medium level of, of customization, there's a there's interest in, in an optics and an irons division there. So to me, it looks like there's you know five divisions there. Stock irons, stock optics, limited irons, limited optics, and then open optics. And then obviously the, the existing divisions, PCC. Again, if you apply this metric, nobody's really looking for a stock PCC division. Nobody's really talking about PCC irons. I know those are things in Steel Challenge, I know they they have participation, and I'm not saying that, that that's unimportant, but I don't think there's a lot of demand for bringing the as many divisions as Steel Challenge has over into USPSA. So if we kind of take this framework of these five divisions that I've laid out as being desirable, and we look at what we have on the books now, the the sort of most straight line path to me looks like something like this. Carry optics becomes limited optics. You take out the requirement for a double single gun, you take out the, the weight limit, and it basically just becomes limited with a slide ride dot. And you'll have all your 59-ounce Shadow 2s can start cocked and locked if they want. They can shoot double single. And there's no, there are no guns that are being kicked out of the sport by this. If you have a gun that was, that was built out for, for the current carry optics rules, you just go straight into limited optics, which in a lot of ways is, is what carry optics already has become. And then on the other side, we take production and we turn the dial back quite a bit and we make it actually a stock gun division again. Now, there are a lot of different approaches to doing this. I just kind of sat down and, and this is what comes to mind for me. None of these are necessarily set in stone, but this is the 
the direction that that my mind goes. So first off, we go to something like an IPSC-style trigger pull test. So in IPSC in production, you either have to have a five-pound pull on your first trigger, and then after that it can be anything you want it, or three pounds on every trigger pull. So basically, rather than trying to police springs and internal modifications, which I fully admit is completely impossible, the, the, there's a reason we've had this idea of external modifications being what's policed for a while. Rather than trying to chase and, and police internal modifications, we just basically say, we're going to draw the line at either three pounds on a basically every, every trigger pull for a striker gun, or five pounds on a double action. That's what's considered practical and safe in production division. And as long as you meet that criteria, you're good to go. I think having a system where there is no production box per se, I mean, this is the way that it is in, in IPSC, because if the gun comes from the factory and it would fit the dimensions of the box, then there's nothing you can do to it that would make it not fit the box. The only thing I can really think in, in USPSA that's an issue is adding wider safeties than come stock on the gun, which obviously isn't an issue in IPSC. But if you combine this with going back to the idea of having to meet factory weight plus or minus two ounces, then anything you could do that would make the gun not fit the box would also add significant weight, and so it would, it would probably be caught in that. So you just do away with the idea of, of putting something in the box. If the gun is on the list, then it's assumed to be of an appropriate size. So you're not going to have the Glock 17L on the production gun list, and so if somebody shows up with one of those, there's no need to box it. The gun isn't on the list, so end of story. I'm of two minds about what to do about changing external parts. So the IPSC approach is only you can only swap the gun, the parts that come on the gun with other parts made by the factory that, that produces the gun. And so this is why you see for guns like Tanfolio, they have the extreme line of accessories. CZ has the same thing where you, you actually create the incentive for manufacturers to in-house have a competition line of race parts. To me, I, I think that actually encourages manufacturers to engage with the competition community. It encourages them to put out models of guns that you can then buy upgrade parts to if you want to, but it's still staying within this relatively constrained box. And there's a, an interesting presentation from a few years ago when the, at one of these in-person board meetings, there were a bunch of guns being looked at and discussed about showing a bunch of board members who are not necessarily subject matter experts in production guns showing them a bunch of things saying, oh, is this, is this legal or is this not? And they can't tell. And so the assumption is, well, if they can't tell, then nobody can tell. And so there's no point having the rule. And in practical terms, what it looks like happens overseas is that the potential penalty for getting caught with any kind of aftermarket part on your gun in production is so severe, a bump to open, that it's just not worth it. There's, there's so little advantage to be gained by most of these aftermarket trigger shoes or hammers or any of these external modifications that people just don't worry about it. And I'm sure there are people that probably skate by with some slightly illegal changed part. But as you get higher in the standings, as you get closer to winning, well, it's certainly if you're on the super squad and you're running some illegal part and somebody sees it, there's going to be a discussion about that well before the, the last day of the match. And so there's it's not that every RO has to be able to recognize every single part that is and isn't factory. It's that if your fellow competitors, the people who are shooting in production division with you, and they are subject matter experts in, in some of these guns, if they spot something illegal on your gun and they point it out and they're right, then you're screwed. 
And so the incentive to run a lot of these parts goes away. And I really think that this, this goes down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's worth discussing the fact that yes, production is meant to be one of its purposes is meant to be the stock gun beginner division where somebody can buy a gun at a gun store, show up and shoot it in production. But that doesn't mean that just because they bought the gun, especially if they bought it used and some guy had swapped out parts, that production should be a place where they can just show up with any any accessory they can slap on a Glock. Production is is meant to be a more restrictive stock gun little sandbox. It is the place in the USPSA rulebook where we explicitly say the whole ethos of if it's not against the rules it's allowed, that does not apply in production. It's the one place where we say it is on the competitor to prove that this gear is legal for production. It is not assumed legal unless it is disqualified. And I think that is a really key element of production that has that we've really lost sight of in the past few years by saying, well, you know, if we can't have ROs able to prove that something's out of so outside the rules, then we, we can't bump them to open. No, no, no. That's not how production works. In production, it is on the competitor. If there's any doubt that you're taking a gun to a level two match and someone might flag that as not being a legal production gun, either you need to have documentation or some way to prove that it is a part, an allowed part, or you don't risk it. Or you do risk it and maybe you don't get caught. But production is, is supposed to be different in that way. It is not supposed to be this, this place where every benefit is given to the competitor. Production is meant to be a very tight, locked down little corner of the sport to do something interesting. And, and because once you have that rule in place, then you, you create this environment where people are incentivized to just run stock guns. But you have to keep that mindset when you're discussing the, the rules. And I think that, that really has been lost. So anyway, to go back to my, my being of two minds about exchanging minor external parts. So the idea number one would be you can only put factory parts on the gun. This encourages factory manufacturers to actually put out competition line parts or to issue special competition edition guns that come with with upgraded features, which I think ultimately is is good for the sport. I think, yes, it's nice if some guy with a CNC machine can make aftermarket hammers for, for some gun, but ultimately what we want is an ecosystem where people can actually buy these guns and, and compete with them off the shelf. That's what production is about. And so to me, you know, even things like the Beretta 92X with the takedown lever that's got a little wedge on it that, that makes it a slight bit of a thumb rest, as long as the factory is producing it that way, I'm, I'm inclined to say, go for it. Let, let factories experiment with adding ideas to the pool. On the other hand, the other, the other option would be you basically say minor parts can be exchanged. You can run aftermarket hammers, aftermarket trigger shoes, aftermarket takedown pins that give you a little bit of a notch for your, for your thumb, as long as it doesn't put you over the, the weight limit. I think that obviously is the easier to administer rule. A certain part of me says a lot of these takedown lever thumb rests, I, I mean, they, they don't look remotely interesting to me. I don't think anybody really considers them to be an overwhelming advantage. And so at the end of the day, if, if we want to just allow exchange of minor internal stuff like that, uh, okay, I, I, I would, I wouldn't, that would not be the hill that I would die on. To me, production is much more about the gun actually being a, a relatively factory gun and not adding a bunch of weight to it, adding a bunch of accessories to it, adding flashlights to it, adding all this stuff to it. If you want a gun, if a new gun that comes out that has, you know, slide milling that you wouldn't be allowed to do on your gun, 
well, then you can upgrade to that gun and sell the one you have, and you're not out that much money. To me, that's that's the way production should be. This idea that, oh, I've got a, you know, I, I own I own two Glock 17s. One has front cocking serrations on it and one that doesn't. And the idea that I would take that Gen 3 Glock 17 and send it off to somebody to have it milled for front serrations, it's like, no, if I really want that, I'll just sell that and buy a, a Gen 5 that has the front serrations. Or I'll just buy a Gen 5 on top of the one that I that I have. But the, the idea that in production, people, if a factory gun comes with something, you should be allowed to go and pay a gunsmith to do that to the gun, again, completely misses the 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 purpose of the division. And then the the last thing that I that I wrote down on the, this list, I'm sure there are others that'll that'll come to me after I publish, but the the last one is it's it's really two pronged. One is go back to actually requiring manufacturers to manufacture 2,000 of the gun before they can put it into production. It, it, I, that was the rule that has been in place since production was introduced. I think it's a, a reasonable line. The idea of the requirement for carry optics only requiring 500 guns to be produced was made out of whole cloth when carry optics was created. And then once that was done, it was it was sort of used to say, oh, well, now, you know, manufacturers have to submit two forms. Isn't that a shame? Let's just lower production to 500 when they could have just made carry optics use the 2000 number all along. They could have just had it be the same form. So to me, it just looks like it was sort of this this one two punch of, oh, let's make this new division that's only 500 and then let's lower production to 500 just so we can throw the doors wide open and to me, the point is a production gun should be something that actually a, a manufacturer is making a significant number of. It shouldn't be something that's a, a one-off niche thing. And that's why the, the 2000 unit rule applies. And I think this idea that, oh, we're burdening manufacturers by making them turn in these forms. Again, production is, is the place where a lot of, of the norms of USPSA are kind of turned on their head. And so, yeah, if a, if a competitor wants to shoot a gun and the, the manufacturer hasn't submitted the form, then they can shoot it in limited. There's always that option, but production is, is supposed to be this more tightly controlled little sandbox and trying to lower the barrier to entry to that has obviously been counterproductive. The division has just completely gone off a cliff. So I think the sooner we can actually make some improvements, the better. So go back to requiring 2000 uh, minimum units manufactured, certified by the manufacturer, and actually maintain the production gun list in a little more proper way. I mean, this is one of those things, like the classification system, that we're paying headquarters to do. We say every individual section, every individual area shouldn't do this. This is something that should be done and done well by headquarters. And so the fact that, I mean, for example, you look at, this is just because I know this gun, there are four or five different entries for the Tanfolio stock two on the, on the production gun list. And all but one of them has the wrong weight. You know, it's a 44 ounce gun, but a bunch of them say it's, it's 47 ounces. I don't know where they got that from, but it's, it's been on there for years. And so there's, I'm sure there are many other guns that have never been shot. Nobody even owns them or has interest in them. You know, there should be a process for saying, hey, here are the guns that as of January 1st next year, we're going to drop from the production gun list. If you want to keep any of these guns on the list, let us know. And and that's just the, the way that it is, because some of these guns haven't been produced for years. Nobody's shooting them. I mean, you look at the list of Tanfolios, and it's mostly the polymer frame carry duty guns that, that, that nobody's going to shoot. And so I think 
actually taking the production gun list as more than just a dumping ground where things get added and then never modified, have a process for submitting corrections, have a process for clarifying with a manufacturer, hey, do these guns still exist? Are these weights right? I mean, again, obviously you need to have someone at the manufacturer willing to work with you or someone who is a subject matter expert in that gun willing to offer some clarifications. But this is one of the things that headquarters should be doing right. And the fact that they honestly treat the production gun list as just, like I said, a dumping ground lowers the confidence of the membership in it. And so it needs to be something that more attention is paid to if this is going, if this plan is going to work. So if all that's done, we make this new production division that's actually in some vague way resembling what I've just laid out that is actually more of a stock gun division. No more 59 ounce guns that are bumping up against the, the limit there. Then I think the next thing as a part of all this that makes sense is, is making it a 15 round division. And some people say, why 15? Why not 17? Why not how many you can fit in the magazine with the gun fitting in the box? Well, again, I've, I've just laid out that I think the idea of, of a box for production guns is, is sort of counterproductive in, in the first place. You shouldn't be able to modify a production gun in a way that it will not fit the box anyway. The origin of 10-round production is because the division came to be in the year 2000 when we were six years into an assault weapons ban that said that you could not make, import, or manufacture magazines that held more than 10 rounds. And so, quote-unquote, pre-ban magazines, even for a Glock or a Beretta that held the full 17-round capacity, were expensive and, and hard to get. And so when production was introduced into the U.S., it had a 10-round capacity. It, when it was introduced into IPSC originally, there was no capacity limit. You just couldn't extend the magazines. Um, I have a, a whole blog post I wrote tracing all of this if you're, if you're interested. It's called The Case for 15-Round Production. I'll link to it in the show notes. But basically what happened is 2000, in 2000, the division's introduced as a 10-round division. In 2004, the assault weapons ban sunsets. In 2005, there's some discussion by the then president of USPSA in front sight of what should, should we raise the capacity? And I've not seen any reference to it since then. And so people can talk about, oh, it's, you know, the mag changes, tests your stage planning. Most of the people who say that don't actually shoot production all that much, I find. And if that's what's really interesting to you, there's still single stack. You can shoot 10 round single stack minor if that's the, the challenge you're looking for. As far as states with some kind of magazine capacity limit, I think rule 3.3.1 covers this pretty well. It says that in a state that has capacity limit, then the, the limit for all divisions is that state mandated capacity. And so you see this in, in states like I think New York and New Jersey, where everything is, is 10 rounds. It is a little fuzzier in states like California that have a grandfather clause where basically people find ways to get magazines and you can't prove that you didn't have it. And obviously this is this is the way that, that it works in Colorado, although Colorado's magazine capacity limit is, is 15, but that's that's basically what people say at, at the local level is nobody's worried about it, nobody asks questions, and everybody just flies under the radar. At that point, I mean, I could see a, a modification to 331 that would say in open and limited slash limited optics, the capacity limit is whatever the maximum grandfather limit is, if there is a limit on grandfathered magazines, but that if there is a, a limit on what you can buy new, then that's the limit for production. Because that's basically, that's if you go to a gun store and you buy a gun, that's what you're going to get in the box with that gun, which to me is consistent with the stock gun ethos. 
I I also think that having 15 round production is perfectly fair for people traveling from out of state because you can always go from one of these capacity restricted states. And if I were in one of those states, I'd shoot one of these very common guns, a Glock, a Shadow 2, a Stock 2, and either plan or hope that I could borrow 15 round, 17 round magazines from somebody in the in the state where I was traveling to to shoot a big match. And I think you definitely have a much better chance trying to shoot someone else's magazines in a in a 15 round scenario than trying to borrow even 140 millimeter magazines and and shooting carry optics. I think I mean certainly my Tanfolio 140 millimeter magazines are picky about bullet shape. They only run with round nose bullets and so if I always shot those and someone came and tried to borrow them because they lived in a magazine capacity state and tried to use them at a match and they brought some flat point syntec or something, then the magazines wouldn't run. But if they're just stock magazines, they'll run that stuff all day long. So I think if we're if we're really concerned about people being able to travel from magazine banned states and shoot more broadly, I think 15 rounds is still compatible with that. They'll have to borrow magazines, but in a stock gun division, that should not be that big of a deal. And then once all this is done in production, then we just say production optics is production plus a dot. So maybe the the weight limit is, so we say in production, you can have the listed gun weight plus or minus two ounces. And then in production optics, it's plus or minus four ounces, something like that. And then there's no box. You don't have to have IDPA with their funny box with a hole cut in it for the optic. None of that. Again, the idea is if the gun is on the list, then you can shoot it, just like an IPSC. There's no modification that you can make to a gun that would be on the list that would make it not be on the list. And so, again, to review, what we would end up with is production as an actual stock gun, 15-round division, production optics, production with a dot. We'd have limited, just the same as it always is, what most of our current carry optics guns would go into limited optics, which again would be would be limited. You could have single action guns, you could have 140 millimeter magazines, again, already what is the standard in carry optics. You can no weight limit, you can have race holsters, and we have limited optics, and then open just stays the way that it is. And those become sort of the five main competitive divisions. And then there's obviously PCC, which seems to be doing fine on its own, and then the, the sort of legacy divisions of single stack and, and revolver. So, yes, I, I know that I am discussing adding more divisions, and typically I'm not someone in, in favor of that, but I think what this would end up doing is actually encouraging people to, to evaluate the guns that they want to shoot and pick a division where there is actual competition. I, I think, again, based on the data from, from IPSC, I think production, it, there is still demand out there untapped. It was the biggest division, both at the individual and team's level, at the world shoot. And so if we can create a, an ecosystem vaguely resembling what they have, I think we would see a lot of participation in these actual stock gun divisions for people who aren't that interested in tinkering with their guns. They just want to buy something. Maybe they swap a few parts, put a connector in their Glock or whatever, as long as they meet the trigger pull weight limits and they're not putting on anything aftermarket on the gun, they can just go shoot. So if if I were in a position to advocate, if I were on the board, that that's what that's sort of the the package that I would lay out and and push towards. Um, I'm not. If I do end up on the board again, it would it would be in the beginning of 2024, at which point the ship would have already sailed for the package of rules changes that will happen on January 31st, 2024. So 
this is this is what I think makes sense. Hopefully, some of this made sense. I encourage you to reach out to your area director. They are apparently going to be discussing this at the in-person board meeting. Whether you believe that your area director listens to you or not is between you and them, but I figured I would at least lay out what is possibly a, a comprehensive vision for where to take the stock gun side of the sport, reconcile it with the divisions that we have right now, and try and set up a formula that I think would actually set USPSA up for success going forward. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is ben at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.